Hello, protocols, packets, and programs. I love role-playing games like D&D and board games like Clue. Clue, for example, a game about solving mysteries like who killed the colonel with a dirty pipe in the code library? Where was the JavaScript killed with a JNDI? But where the movie Clue gave us mystery and comedy and an amazing cast, including Tim Curry. AppSec just gives us a cast of CVEs with curious names and patching SLAs that far too many people laugh at. Which means this week we talk with Farshad Abbasi from Forward Security about making security champions successful, finding useful tools, and getting application security right. In the news segment, hitting the Linux kernel with a dirty pipe. See, that was foreshadowing. Warping Azure automation for cross-account access. Traversing Azure logic for root access. Storming UPS devices with TLS errors and more. Find a motive and stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. It's the show to learn the latest tools, techniques, and processes necessary to understand DevOps, application security, and cloud security. Your trusted source for the latest application security news. It's time for Application Security Weekly. Imperva protects applications wherever they live and at the pace of development. From securing applications at runtime to protecting APIs in any cloud environment, only Imperva offers a unified solution across edge, application, and data to help you achieve more and save money. Start a free trial today and quickly protect your web applications at securityweekly.com forward slash Imperva. This is episode 188, recorded March 14th, 2022. I'm your host, Mike Shima, and I'm here with John Kinsella. Hello, John. Happy Pi Day. How are you? Happy Pi Day. It is Happy Pi Day. I did not, how, how irrational of you to uh, bring that up for us. Um, <clears throat> while John is calculating how many digits of pi he can recall, I want to remind all of our listeners to not miss any of your favorite Security Weekly content. Visit securityweekly.com slash subscribe to subscribe to any of our podcast feeds and have all new episodes downloaded right to your phone. You can also join our mailing list at the Discord server to chat with us right now and follow us on social media and our streaming platforms. Farshad Abbasi is an innovative technologist with over 24 years of experience in software design and development, network and system architecture, cybersecurity management, and technical instruction. With a keen interest in security from the start, he has become an expert in that aspect of computing and communication over the last 18 years. He started Forward Security in 2018 with a mission to provide world-class information security services, particularly in the application and cloud security domains. Prior to creating Forward, he was a senior member of HSBC Group's IT security team, with the most recent positions being the Principal Global Security Architect and Head of IT Security of the Canadian Division. Farshad is continuing an 18-year stint as an instructor at BCIT, where he shares his passion for information and network security, helping others build a career in this exciting field. He's also the security correspondent for CFAX Radio, B-Size Vancouver, a Mars board member, Vancouver OWASP chapter lead, a CISSP designate, and a UBC CS alumnus. And wow, what a long list of stuff you've been doing. So uh, with totally. that, I've got to say hello, Farshad. Thank you for joining us. Busy guy. Thanks for reading all that. It is a lot of stuff. That's for sure. <laughs> it's a lot of stuff, but it's good, and I think it um it it, it shows a, a bit of a journey, if you will, and uh, possibly a bit of a reason why you would like us uh, speaking us as the industry 
to do application security right. So if we're going to do application security right, maybe um, maybe where should we start? Should we talk about what's been doing wrong or maybe what we could be doing better? Uh, help us figure out where maybe the, the paths that, that maybe haven't been succeeding these last 18 to 20 years. Absolutely, absolutely. It's always good to uh, it's always good to look at the gaps and uh, you know where things could be made better, and then have that conversation um, accordingly. And in, and you know, looking at uh, as you mentioned, I've been in this industry for quite a while. I think I started. Well, it depends on how far you want to go back. As if you want to go back in terms of when I started programming, that goes back to when I was about thirteen, so sometime in the mid eighties, let's say. <laughs> nice. Um, and uh, and and you know, but if you want to talk about professionally, you know, finished comp sci back in the late 90s in the dot-com heat of the dot-com era and went right into building software you know web applications right at the time in fact my first uh, my first job involved building an e-commerce platform and at the time you had no payment gateways uh, there were no modular shopping carts um you know it was sort of javascript had just come out java was fairly new and the idea was like hey you got you needed to go build it yourself and over those years that i worked as a software developer i learned a lot about um, software, but also a lot about security because the stuff that I built um, ended up getting hacked uh, here and there. <laughs> so I learned the hard lessons and uh, decided mm -hmm. to pivot to help others not make those mistakes that I made as a software developer, as a person who built systems. But oftentimes, what you see is that uh, not enough people have made that crossover, and there are a lot of there's a, application security has historically didn't get the attention that it deserved. Um, and, and also particularly partly is because uh, there weren't maybe as many applications that are that were exposed to the internet. Uh, nowadays, um, everybody's got a digital transformation program and, and you know, especially COVID has really helped accelerate the rate of um, digital transformation. So you, we've got a lot more applications that there were before. And of course, as we always say in security, where there's a lot of something, it'll also get a lot of attention from attackers, right? It's the classic PC versus Windows argument in terms of security. There's always been a lot of Windows um, you know, for people to hack and not as many Macs. And now that there's more Macs, you see more Mac exploits and all that kind of stuff. But with uh, with applications, now there's a huge number. And and of course, attackers have more to more to attack. And and, and in fact, I think the Verizon data breach report from 2020 said that uh, the applica applications were made up 43% of attack vectors. Um, and the other 57 were ransomware and things, the traditional, uh, the traditional um, attack vectors. But it's pretty eye-opening to see that it's uh, it, it doubled. That was another stat. Was that in that year it doubled from the previous rate, and now it almost makes up majority. And and that that uh, you know, and then the challenge with that is not enough companies or practitioners have uh, spent time in that domain. It's still a fairly up and coming domain. In in uh, 2011, I was at a SANS event in Vegas. It was at one of those PCI training events that I the bank had sent me on, and uh, you know, I think the room had the room about maybe 50 or 60 people attending that. That session and the instructor asked how many people in this room have an application security program and only two of us put our hand up which was me from hsbc and someone from citibank and it was really eye-opening to see that not many companies had AppSite programs not, not a lot of them understood it and even the ones that had it like us at hsbc some of the top level management didn't really understand what it is that we were doing and in fact that program when, when there was a reorganization and the previous management left that program fell apart because again there was not enough buy-in or understanding at the top level and then you know they they that program fell apart in the in around 2012 2013 and then fast forward to you know around 2016 2017 where they're adopting devops and they wanted to re 
uh, you know, re re-stand up that whole application security program that we had previously. So, you know, it's it's I think that's one of the biggest challenges, lack of understanding, both from from the security industry as well as the buyers, you know, the people that are building software. Yeah, I, I definitely want to come back to that program, both on that that aspect of it sort of dwindled and went away, but then it resurfaced around 2016, as you're describing. But um, you know, you were just you also start off talking about your history, and you know, you're doing development early on. Sure, you had maybe some uh, vulnerabilities in the code that you're writing. But, um, you know, you had a top 10 list, at least to reference, right, to keep you secure. And my history started off not on the development side, but on the pen testing side. So if you were doing the development, you had this top 10 list, and I was just going around pen testing everything. You know, what did we do wrong that application security is still such a mess today? What did we do wrong that is still a mess today? <laughs> um, we now, name we, the one we thing. We half an hour, so yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things. I think it just comes because it's so new. I think it just needs yeah. a bit of time. I think that's that's the thing is that it needs a bit of time and it needs a bit of, it needs to mature. Now, you know, when we compare it to say network security, right? How long have we been doing network security? In fact, like for as long as I can remember, I mean, you know, the, the moment that I got my first internet connection back in the mid '90s, there was a whole aspect of like, how do you do to secure it and firewalls and hey, you got to go get a you know a firewall for your network and all that kind of stuff. That stuff has been around for a long time. The practitioners understand it, the buyers understand it. With AppSec, we know we never really had that problem. You know, apps were always inside the corporate network and relatively secure. Now that the game has changed, right? The corporate network is not really safe anymore. It hasn't been that way for a long time. And in fact, I remember at HSBC, we uh, we were adopting zero trust back in 2010. You know, and it, it, that was one of the benefits of working at a really large company with a lot of money is that you got to work on really you know new concepts, cutting edge technologies, and ideas that you know I see late, way later on that other companies or industries adopting. But why did we go to zero trust way back then? Is because you know, we realized that hey, inside outside is almost the same, right? I, you know, in the old days, the the, the the teams would argue that hey, I'm putting this application inside. Why do I need to encrypt that? You know, the communication or have TLS, and then you know that the, the the game the game has changed. Is now that developers just send malware to one of our team employees, employee opens it up, and somehow the protections don't work, and then now the malware can pivot from inside the network and really inside and outside are fairly the same, especially with a really large large enterprises. If you have a company that has 200,000 employees around the world, that's pretty much its own little internet or a little little world world wide web. So you know it's it's almost a public network when you get to be a really 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 large network. Um, so yeah, lots of challenges, lots of challenges, and I don't I don't think it's that we've intentionally been doing things wrong. I just think that it's just hasn't had enough time to mature. And you know what they say in security, um, you know uh, things have to stand the test of time uh, for them to uh, for them to be secure. The interesting thing about AppSec is, or about the way you're phrasing that, I, I sort of agree with you. But as a field, we're moving so quickly. I mean, what a develop, what the cool hip thing is for a developer to work on today is completely different than what it was, you know, three months ago, definitely six months ago. How it'd be interesting to think about how do you how do you pair those two together? With you've you've got something which needs to take us a, um, I'll say, an organic uh, process of maturation. Combine that with the the shiny object of, of the day. Yeah, uh, it's true. Uh, but there's also the other side. So yes, technology changes. Like for example, let's take APIs, right? You know, uh, four or five years ago, it was all REST, REST, REST. Now it's like GraphQL and, you know, things are changing constantly. Yeah, that is true. But as a programmer, one thing that was proven to me is once you kind of learn the concepts, 
you know, once you kind of know one type of programming, if you're doing object oriented versus functional versus whatever, you can apply the same concepts and learn a new la really language really quickly. So mm -hmm. I'm going to apply that analogy to security. If you understand the concepts of security app, like, you know, th thread modeling, if you're able to take something in thread modeling, thread model it and look at it from the perspective of like, hey, here's where the data comes in, here's where the data travels, here are the particular touch points, and here's where something someone could do something bad. If you step okay. up, step step into that 20,000 foot view and look at security or application security from that perspective, it doesn't really matter what that at the at the micro level or at the ground level, whether technology has changed or not, whether it's the GraphQL API or REST API. Yes, it does matter when you try to go in and, and find the specific security issues there, but you should be able to take a user story that you're developing and thread model it and come out with the abuse cases and figure out how to secure that. That is, you know, once you gain that skill set, that is something that's applicable across different architectures or different technology stacks. And then of course, for the more granular level, like, you know, I, I'll use the REST versus GraphQL uh, API example. That's something that, you know, there's lots of uh, smart folks out there putting out, uh, you know, documents, articles, or papers. So with a little bit of education, you can brush up on those uh, those nuances. And that's exactly what I do as a practitioner to keep up with that, these types of things. I reapply those conceptual uh, patterns, if you will, which totally, you know, uh, totally patterns and practices which are applicable across technologies. And then I'll go quickly learn the nuances that that are applicable at the at the bottom level. When you're describing that, there's an aspect of the the, the threat modeling that you brought up, and I I'm going to posit that the developers are going to be good understanding of that cutting edge. What is the new, you know, what are the new microservice uh, architectures they want to adopt in GCP versus AWS? Well, how would they do that zero, the, the concept of zero trust in terms of trust relationships between and complex IAM policies in the cloud? But you also brought up that aspect of sort of that abstracted threat modeling. But uh, there I want to tie into who does the threat modeling, especially when we're talking about getting application security right and being able to do it at a large organization. Because I can imagine even at HSBC, probably had a you know a, a few dozen thousands of apps, I'm going to guess. And I'm going to also guess that you were not able to threat model every one. So when we get into that idea of we need to understand them and apply those principles, who is the we in this conversation and how do we get that group of we uh, to to be able to do threat modeling effectively? It's a really good question, Mike. Um, it's different for a large enterprise than for a small company, for sure. And 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 let's 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 go with a large enterprise example. Um, you know, me at HSBC or my colleague uh, Jeevan, who co-co-leads uh, the the OWASP Vancouver chapter with me. He works at Twilio, and he's going through a similar thing as well. In those large enterprises, you do have a core AppSec team, right? So in us, with us at HSBC, um, you know, our global AppSec team was about twenty people. Then we also had a bunch of sort of more uh, analyst level practitioners. We had about two hundred of them to support about a thousand applications. But what we did there is we worked in mentorship capacity. So the, the core AppSec team would, uh, we, we rolled out training first and foremost. So in fact, um, you know, I built this threat modeling training and went globally um, you know, and rolled it out and did lots and lots of training and made sure that they had that foundational uh, uh, background. And then what we did is we worked in mentorship capacities that we would attend, uh, say, you know, once a week, uh, a security stand-up or an hour meeting where they would bring in certain user stories uh, that were selected based on a filter list and then we would thread model with them so that they learn how this works. And you know, so combined with the training and the mentorship and the ongoing work that we're doing, at some point you would see that transition where 
you know, we would just step back and say, okay, you know what, today you do threat modeling on that particular user story. And, and, and then and eventually over a period of six months to, to 12 months, the developers would start to actually do that themselves and get in the habit of uh, being able to identify uh, the, the uh, user stories that uh, had particular security concern and threat model them. Another thing that we would do to help them is uh, give them an initial list that they could use to filter the user stories because not everything requires threat modeling. Um, you know, if you have not all not all the requirements of the user stories that they're building are are made equal, uh, so that also really helped hone in on ones that uh, would have security concern. And the questions that would be asked were fairly simple. You know, hey, does this user story involve handling uh, data that falls into your higher classification levels, or is this uh, an external fin facing function, or is this handling some sort of a security function and and things like that um, uh, to support them and make that a more efficient process. What did you see being most successful in the threat modeling in terms of just expressing the threat model or considering evaluating risk of an item? And here I'm thinking more about specifically just risk and trying to avoid either developers from basically being too hand wavy at a too high level abstraction to the other end of the spectrum of being where they say, well, assume the same origin policy has been broken. What are we going to do to protect our, you know, front, you know, our client facing app in that situation? There's got to be a, you know, a, a nice middle in there where they're doing something risk-based effective. And I'm, I hope I'm thinking because you come from a bank that, you know, talking about this risk aspect is going to resonate a bit. Yeah. And maybe I just want to uh, make sure that I understood the question. So are you talking about what do we do to make it so that it's not so hand wavy and so high level, but also not too low? Is that what you're? What yeah. You're so I guess maybe what's what's the the right amount of guidance so that as a you know as a appsec person you can step in with the training, but then also step away and still have some confidence that developers are going to be thinking about good risk focused threat models versus just checking a box against uh, uh, against a checklist or saying ah you know I'm going to walk I'm going to make fun of the OWASP top ten a little bit here like uh, well, here are the th top three of the OWASP top ten we don't do this we don't do this we don't do this or I've considered cross site scripting. Therefore, I'm done. Just sort of, you know, trying right. to flesh out what that, what maybe, maybe what really, really is what I'm asking. What does some good training look like, or how did you approach that training to have confidence that that would be successful? That they're doing the right thing. Yeah, and then of course, there's the the threat modeling can be applied at two different levels as well, right? You can apply it at the high level where you're just looking at architecture and you know the mm -hmm. uh, the the hops across the data path and things like that, or you can also zoom in and mm -hmm. and look at a particular function that they're building, and in order to make sure that uh, how do I how do I know that they're successful? I mean, of course, it's sort of a uh, it's not a uh, it's more of an art than a science, if you will. It's really working with them, <laughs> and as you're mentoring yeah. them, uh, you know, you start to take off the training wheels, and you're like, okay, today I'm not going to come up with the threat scenarios, and I want you know, you just sit back and say, today's your turn, and then you know, and observe them how they do it, and you guide them and and try to steer them in the right direction. But again, providing a framework, providing that uh, structure that they can work within and with the right. Uh, training is important. What I mean by that is that, uh, like you said, like how do they think? Oh, I've got cross-site scripting. Am I done here? Um, you know, that that's a really good point. If they don't have a framework or some structure, so then they know they've covered the what it needs to be covered, then they'll fail. One of the things we've done uh, when we work with clients, uh, we've done that. We've essentially built this high-level, um, what I like to call a threat modeling uh, diagram and Lucid chart. You know, it, it shows like a typical application, and then on the sidebar, we've got a list of. Um, um, unauthenticated attacks followed by a list of authenticated attacks. Ah. And then in the list of, because, you know, attackers have always got to start from an unauthenticated position, right? And then, well, if you're starting at an unauthenticated position, what are the things that you can do? Well, you know, you can try a SQL injection on the logging 
page. You can do a whole bunch of the, those things. So we get the developer to go through those systematically and say, do any of these, uh, can, can any of these be possible uh, in, in an unauthenticated context? And then if they answer any of them to be yes, then they get to further look at the authenticated list. It's like, okay, great. You said that it's possible to do SQL injection on the you know, username and password on the login page. Is That could either be the end of that threat scenario. You, you, know, you get your SQL injection, you get everything you want, or it could lead into another... Uh, so from there, they can, they can pivot and do more. So then they go into the list, they consider the list of authenticated attacks that we've listed down below. So that really helps people that are particularly those that are new uh, to think of it in a structured way. Also, using the stride uh, classification model also helps because then we get the developers to systematically go through each of those categories and think about it. Like, is there spoofing attack? Is there tampering, repudiation, and information disclosure, and so on and so forth? And by just pausing for you know, X number of seconds on each of those categories and giving it some thought, um, it makes them not forget things, right? So having those systems really help uh, bring consistency, particularly for uh, those that are newer to the process. Yeah, I think I've, I must admit that Stride is, is dusty in my brain, but I still appreciate it from the perspective of having a lingua franca, being able to, as you said, if we say spoofing, we at least have a rough understanding or have a way of describing this is what we mean by spoofing as a type of attack, um, repudiation, all, all of those aspects. Where I want to turn that, though, is from the DevOps perspective side now, the, the developer's perspective. When you have those conversations, and this also goes back to I think sort of the theme I think that John kind of touched on a bit, do you see or have you seen the developers come back and say, well, look, we're just we're using React. We don't really care about cross-site scripting or we're using an ORM. SQL injection isn't a big deal or we're using some type of just key value data store. So we don't have classic, quote unquote, SQL injection. And I'm, where I'm going with this sort of question is I'm curious how these conversations in terms of doing application security right have had that feedback loop from the developers as well in the sense of, well, rather than go through this checklist, I have to spend, you know, I'm supposed to spend my day coding. Maybe I should be coding on something different, something better, a security pattern to implement. Have the, you know, have you been able to mature into those types of targeting attack classes as well um, when you have yes. these conversations? Yeah. And tell us yeah, a little bit about that. Yeah. A really good question. I think you packed a whole bunch of different uh, items in that one question. The, the one thing I'll start by saying is you asked, you know, hey, I'm using React as is cross-site scripting relevant to me, or I'm using an ORM as mm -hmm. SQL injection relevant to me, right? Those conversations need to be also systematic. Um, you know, how do we go, like, do we have a list of what are you doing to address SQL injection, cross-site scripting, et cetera, et cetera, so that the developer can provide those answers? And the answer is, yes, we do. It's OWASP's application security verification standard, right? ASVS is a great standard that can be used both by developers and by the security team to figure out um, you know, if the application's got the right level of security controls, right? I mean, at HSBC, we had our own application security standard. Um, you know, we were a large company and we built something. But if I look back now, if I were to do that again, I would have just adopted ASVS. It essentially has a list of all those things, like you know, for cross-site scripting, SQL injection, what are you doing? And then the developer can take that list in the, in, in the beginning. And often this is what we do with our clients when we first engage um, you know, if we engage with them on a long-term basis, which is often we do, they'll bring us in on a 12 to 24 month basis to help them roll out an application security program or DevSecOps program. Uh, one of the first things we do is say, here's ASVS, here's all the controls, we're going to go do a self-assessment. Take this and figure out where you stand against the least, this list of these controls. And they'll do exactly that. They'll go through and say, oh yeah, this one says for SQL injection, guess what? I've got an ORM and I'm going to pass that. 
So I, you know, they can take all 280 plus controls and do that, or they can take a subset of ASVS, like level one has about 130 plus controls, which is usually what we recommend as a starting point. And, and once they've done that self-assessment, they'll be like, uh, pretty aware of where their gaps are, like whether they have an ORM or not to address that issue. And, and then we tell them, okay, now the ones that you haven't implemented, uh, take those controls and sprinkle them over the next several sprints, create an epic, um, you know, in your, throw them in your backlog, create a security epic, and then pick up a few of those things every sprint if you can. Try to chew on the security requirements as you go. But then in terms of patterns also, that's another thing we've worked with uh, with organizations because they look at us and they say, well, you know, there's like, you know, even ASS level one has about 130 controls. Are there patterns? Are there groups of things that we can do or make it, or can we make a library or a tool that addresses a group a number of these uh, controls? And the answer is absolutely yes. There are a whole bunch of the ASES controls that simply require various headers to be injected or be present. Mm -hmm. You know, we've worked with teams where they make a library and it just, you know, they can use that centrally for, with all their microservices that'll provide that. Or for example, at HSBC, we, you know, we use that API gateway. API gateway is our, our excellent because you can central security and you can then enforce a lot of security policies. So I worked with the, with the, the with HSBC teams and we came up with, uh, you know, half a dozen patterns. And then we created uh, we created a bunch of uh, plugins for our API gateway that could address those security patterns centrally. So uh, I hope that answers your question, uh, there, Mike. It it does. And now I'm going to now pack another you know 50 questions to give you 30 <laughs> seconds to answer on. So That's be, great. Be, I, love be I love it. But uh, no, actually, I do. Want, it's, it's almost like it's time to play choose your own adventure because what you're just saying at there at the end there um, put my brain on to, to two different paths. One is also maybe the first one. I'll just start off with the, the people side of things because you are talking. About about we are having the conversations with the development team doing that. I kind of want to unpack that a little bit too in the sense of how is, is, is this still just like a application security person that you've dropped in as the, um, you know, the, the consigliere, if you will, to the, to the development team, or are we touching on like that security champions model and, you know, how, so that you can, you as a single person uh, can actually scale out better. And here we're actually talking about scaling with people, which you know, does run into its own challenges, its own problems. But this is the people side I want to ask about first. How, how did those conversations, who was having those conversations and how did you set them up so that they could be scaling pretty effectively? That's a really good point. So first of all, let me tell you the people, the people side of AppSec is quite difficult. I've been in the hiring position in this world for about a decade now. And uh, it's a long, no matter where I've worked with big budget or small budget, it's a long uh, cycle to hire an AppSec individual. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it's a challenge that, you know, that a lot of organizations face. And, you know, and, and let's go back to that AppSec, to the software development team, right? Your DevOps or Agile or whatever, uh, uh, sort of a structure that you have. Uh, that team can't be expected to all of a sudden go from zero to, you know, fully having AppSec in their environment. Mm -hmm. They'll need some sort of guidance and mentorship. <laughs> so where are you going to get that from? Well, if you're a large company like HSBC, you go and you know hire a bunch of uh, individuals, form an AppSec team that's the central center of excellence, and then they federate their services to the people on the ground. So the appropriate model there is that you know you're, within your software teams, you appoint a liaison. Let's call them a security champion. That they're expected to be the interface between your core team that's federating that knowledge and then and then disseminating it centrally. So then the core AppSec team spends you know each. Each of the team members spends a, a portion of their time, and it's not a. This is not a full time job. We tried it at HSBC. We tried assigning full time application security team um, uh, consultants 
two development teams, but there were two challenges. Number one, we already know there's not enough of them. And then for that, HSBC was like, well, let's let's only focus on flagship applications. So let's take our tier one applications. And then then there are enough AppSec folks, right? And I mean, we said, fair enough. But when we did assign those AppSec folks to those teams, the, 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 they were, the feedback was that we're, there's not enough for us to do. It's a typical development team doesn't have enough work on a day-to-day basis for that AppSec person to be busy. So it was sort of like, okay, well, it doesn't really make sense to allocate this whole person that there's not enough of them to a team that's not going to need this person 100% day-to-day. So that the federated model makes a lot of sense for that reason. So you scale that back and you say, you know what, you AppSec person, you allocate 10% of your time to work with that liaison and mentor them. And then in that mentorship capacity, what does that mean? You know, you know. So if we want to go to the ground level, what that means is we would typically have a, uh, you know, an hour a week stand up or ha- or thirty minutes where it just acts as a checkpoint to make sure all the security bits and pieces are moving along. And then a, a, a one hour meeting once a week where the team brings in any items that are worth reviewing that they haven't been able to do. And then, so for example, they ran a bunch of tools and you know they weren't quite sure what some of the what the results mean, or maybe they determined that they require further review, or maybe there's a bunch of new user stories that are about to go to the next sprint and they've been flagged as requiring security review based on a filter that was provided by that central team. Those are all the things that that team member can do, the, the, the dedicated AppSec uh, team member, to help that liaison and that team learn security and mentor them to be there and threat model with them in those weekly meetings. And then once there's been enough mentorship, then they can slowly change that equation and step back. And you know, there's a um, you know that that's so that federation model works well, but it doesn't work well if you're a small company. Like if you're a large company, great, you go get that that uh, central AppSec team that can mentor your security champions and run it and federate and all that great stuff. But what do you do with your small company? Let's say you're a company that you only have ten developers, right? Mm-hmm. That's a tough position to be in, and and those companies will go and advertise, uh, you know, an AppSec position. But they will often fail for two reasons. A, they're a small company. A lot about they won't have the budget to compete with that large company that's going to pay a lot more for that AppSec individual. Yeah. Uh, B, they'll hire that AppSec individual, and then there's no career path. So this company, let's say they're a software development company, they're building health tech software. What do they know about application security? Almost nothing. So they bring this person. This person has no career path, no one to learn from. No one to bounce ideas or be peer review things. And then because they get lonely, they'll leave that company. So there's your AppSec program. You spent all this time and money hiring this person and they left. And then, of course, the other challenge is that you probably don't, if you're a six to 10 person company, you probably don't need a dedicated AppSec person that you're paying a lot of money for. So in those, those cases where you're a small company, you're better off going to a consulting company and getting them to support wow. your AppSec program and help you roll it out. And, you know, for example, like with me, I've done this for at least 12 years. How many times have I been? down this path and all the lessons learned, right? I mean, if I'm going to paint my place, I could go and paint my place, but I don't paint every day. It's going to take me five days to paint the wall. But if I go get a painter who does this every day, he has techniques that he could have done in an hour or two. So, so that's the difference is you bring a professional who've been down this path a million times, and then they can help transform and roll that program. And then they can then further support your your AppSec initiative. And then now you avoided hiring that full-time professional that's impossible to find. And your team transformed from say DevOps to DevSecOps with the right training and support and tools and mentorship. 
Yeah, I think, and I love the attention there on also not just the role, here's what you need a person to do, but here is what a person in that role should have available to them in terms of a career path, in terms of being able to grow, and in terms of just being interested in the job as well. And I think that the, the, the reason I'm highlighting that is there's very much a subtext there of having a program that's successful over the long run, rather than either just burning people out or boring people to death for that matter. But I'm going to, we, we, I'm keeping an eye on the time. And unfortunately, we, we, we always get low because we have great conversations like this. Um, tools. So, so far, I think the only tool really I've heard you mention so far is like an API gateway. Um, so are tools a part of doing application security right? Or, you know, what, what's the role here for um, the, the tooling and automation and reaching, the, the reason I'm asking is for, you know, are they effect, how do we get them to use, to do, how do we use them correctly to scale? Tools are absolutely 100% important. And, you know, and, and basically, so here's the thing, right? DevSecOps is, or it's not a position, it's not a person, it's not a thing. DevSecOps is about elevating how you build software so that software security is a part of it from beginning to end, right? From left to right, part of the you know, left on the, when you're designing and building, right when you're operating on the right side where you're operating it, and and you know those things are are quite important. Now, when we talk about DevSecOps, that assumes that you already have a DevOps team there, so that you can add the sec to that. If you don't, if you're not even DevOps, you got to first become DevOps so that we can add the sec. And the point there is, if you want to be DevOps, guess what? Part of the DevOps formula is automation, right? Like DevOps built on top of Agile. And what was Agile's biggest thing was was CI/CD, right? You know, we all remember this back in the day. Agile came along and. You know, this whole concept of CI/CD came along, and then DevOps further built on top of that. And then, you know, so if you have CI/CD, that means you have automation. If you have automation, you should also benefit from it from a security perspective, and and, and you know, and, and incorporate various tools in your pipeline uh, to address security. Now, that's mostly on the left side, right? on the build side. What about on the operational side? You should also have security tooling there. Things like IaaS or RASP, things that are working from inside the application. The analogy is almost like, you know, for a lot of people that are here familiar, might be familiar with traditional network security is that, you know, in the old, you know, you have IDS you put in your network, but you also have host-based IDS, right? And what do we say? What's the that pros and cons? The network-based IDS doesn't have inside visibility. So it might raise, uh, you might see a pattern based on a regular expression that, you know, in a packet, but it doesn't see if that, uh, that packet reached the server and it actually blew up the server. And a host-based IDS has got that visibility inside. It can look at logs and it can actually uh, you know, make a better determination of what ha actually happened. Same kind of thing in, in, in software security, right? You can have your SaaS and you can have your SCA or your DAS tool, but they're sitting outside. They don't have context. So that's great. That's not to say that we shouldn't do them, just like in a network-based IDS. You should still have it. But when you have something like I asked or RAST, they're within inside the application. So now they have inside visibility. If you add all those things and correlate it and do it properly, you'll have a successful program. And what I mean by that is that when you add particularly those SAST and DAS or SCA type tools in your pipeline, um, you got to make sure you take the time initially to baseline them. Don't just go buy the tool and give it to your developers and, you know, it's the end of that. It's got to be rolled out appropriately with the right support and the right processes. And that initial baseline is really important because if you don't start with zero issues, um, every time your developers run it, there's going to be hundreds of issues and that's just going to grow and they're going to very quickly get tired of it. Um, they're also going to get false positive fatigue. 
But if you spend that time initially with the help of a professional, either consultants because you're a small company or your large company and you have an AppSec team, sitting down with them and then working through everything. So you either accept it, fix the problem, or uh, put an exception and document the risk. And then you reach that zero level. And then from there on, when the developers are checking something in, uh, there's no problems. And if they do introduce a problem, it's something they got to fix. So you put those tools in blocking mode. And of course, things like DAS, you should never put in blocking mode. You should run those in parallel because they often take a long time. And, and again, fine-tuning them and optimizing them and having someone who understands those tools, an app like AppSec professional, uh, help optimize them is quite important in the success of uh, rolling out uh, automated tooling as well. So if we go back to the idea of doing application security right, uh, looking ahead through 2022, if um, you know some of our listeners come back and say, hey, I did this one thing and it put me on a path to doing things well, uh, what, what might be that one thing or that one metric they could uh, perhaps pay attention to? If there's one thing they should do, if they're not doing regular software composition analysis or looking for vulnerabilities mm -hmm. in their packages every day, that's something they should start doing. The analogy that I make is, if I told you, hey, Mike, uh, you know, do you have antivirus on your computer or anti-malware? You're like, absolutely, I do. It's 2020. Everyone's got anti-malware on their computer. I um, mean, you know, Windows Defender comes built in with Windows, right? My next question would be like, well, do you just turn it off and turn it on once a year and then update it once a year? You're like, no, absolutely not. It's running all the time. So then the follow-up question is like, why would you do that to your applications? Because what most companies do is they do an annual pen test, and that's as much as they do for security. That's the equivalent of turning on your antivirus, anti-malware once a year and then turning it off for the rest of the year, right? You need to have constant vulnerability checking on your application. So you need to be running an SCA tool. In fact, on every pull request to figure out if you have a vulnerable package and if you have, you need to, up based on the risk or the threat model, you need to update it. I was just gonna say you need to update it, but I caught myself. And the reason I did is because not everything will have a higher medium risk. So what you should do is when you find that vulnerable, if you can update it, if it's a simple update, do it. But oftentimes an update of a package might break things. If you're in that situation where it's not simple and it breaks things, do a quick threat model and risk assessment. And if it's high or medium, then take appropriate action and update it or come up with alternative mitigating controls. But yeah, it goes back to how important threat modeling is and can be. Yeah, no, I love it. And unfortunately, ho hopefully we'll be able to do a more than just annual visit from you for these chats. This was a good one. So I want to thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. It's a long time listener. It's great to be on the show finally. Ah, that's wonderful. Well, we'll have, absolutely have to have you back. Um, also want to thank John and thank all of our listeners who are saying hi to us in Discord right now as well. Um, we are going to take a, oh, it also sounds like Farshad's hiring. So uh, make sure to send out a resume because it sounds like if you're in the AppSec field and looking for work, uh, he, he might be able to help there. Um, and with that final note, we're going to take a quick break and return with news of the week. <laughs> 